nervous. I don't really know what I'm walking into. I've interviewed hundreds of people and not all good people either. I know how to act, how to compose myself to make people comfortable, but this is different. This man is accused of the most frightening things I have ever dared imagined. To be honest, I couldn't even have imagined them on my own. Violence like that doesn't exist in my head, but it's in his. I take a deep breath and enter the room. And immediately I realize that this is not what I expected. I don't know what I thought he would be. An animal maybe? Enormous and threatening, caged and pacing. Monsters are supposed to be scary. He isn't scary. I walk into the room and there is soft classical music playing. At a table strewn with papers sits a man that looks like home to me. He smiles warmly and jokes that he would shake my hand if that were allowed, but the guards would just haul him away before we had a chance to talk, and he was just happy to be talking to someone, especially a nice young woman like me. This man was charming and sincere. He listened and held eye contact. He never raised his voice or appeared rattled. The wrinkles at the corners of his eyes when he smiled remind me of my favorite college professor, a man who taught me about poetry and let us swear in class. His hands rest comfortably on the table, lacing and unlacing his fingers, fiddling with a pencil that he occasionally rests eraser side up on his lips. It's mesmerizing. I want to listen to him. More than that, I want him to like me. It's not possible. This is an innocent man. Nobody who would seamlessly fit into my everyday life could be capable of tearing women apart, sinking his teeth into the soft flesh of their thighs until blood pooled and ran from the impressions. No one who could have easily bought me a drink at a bar, who, if I'm being honest, in other circumstances, I would have let kiss me, could be able to beat women unrecognizable, hitting them with a wooden club until their jaw disconnected on one side like a broken marionette. They have the wrong man. They have to. Because if he could do these things, if this man who I inexplicably want to touch on the shoulder while we talk could do these things, that means that anyone could. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. Welcome back for part two of Ted Bundy. I know I left you all on a cliff last week, so I'm going to keep our opening remarks brief so that we can get right into the story. Yeah, move everybody away from the cliff. (laughs) That's right. Everyone was like, how could you? Y'all knew it was two parts. (laughs) Please, 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 if you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. We don't always have John Radicasa when we're on camera and our skin needs to look nice. For sure. It really does make all the difference. And if you have not done so already, subscribe. Yes. Right. I always forget to say that, like subscribe to our podcast. (laughs) 
<laughs> then you'll know the moment every new episode hits. Also, if you want to further support We Would Be Dead, head on over to Patreon, where for just a little monthly donation, you'll receive a special gift from us, live access to monthly events, access to our monthly extra podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies. This month, we're recapping Idle Hands, starring Seth Green and Devin Sawa. Mm, I cannot wait. So many 90s feelings are going to come out of both yes. of us. <laughs> And also, um, you'll be getting one informative mini-sode a month, which I think will probably start in March, but we may throw a curveball in and give you one in February. See what we can do. <laughs> we're we can get our shit together. We're we- trying hard. <laughs> we're, we're generating a lot of content now. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to give us a little break. But if not in February, you guys will definitely be getting that in March. You also get discounts to our merch store, and we're working on some really cute new merch. Yeah. And I'm pretty excited, so you're going to want that discount. Mm -hmm. An on-air toast dedicated just to you and much more. And finally, if all of that is a little overwhelming, you can simply share any of our content to your social media feed. Then your friends can become fiends and we can all hang out together. So warming. It's so nice when we're all (laughs) together in a group. And don't forget to join the Facebook group if you haven't. It's really fun over there. Yes. I like it. It's good times. Um, And I think that's all I have for today. Leslie, do you have anything else? Uh, yeah, I brought something with me. What is um, it? I must have left it at home, so not this week. I'll bring it next week, maybe. You fooled me. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I got so excited. <laughs> I was like, oh, what does Leslie have? No, it's not nothing. here. So maybe that was it. Maybe it was nothing. <laughs> Guys, you gave us hope, and then you took it away. Well, one day <laughs> it's going to be big. I know, I can't wait. It's going to be like after your wedding. You're going to be like, <laughs> I got married. Yeah. <laughs> You already said it. Now I don't have news. You didn't get married today. That's true. Okay. All right, then. If you're done tricking us all. (laughs) On with the show. When we last left off, Ted had just abducted and murdered two girls on a beautiful sunny day in Lake Sammamish, Washington. Ted was cocky enough to use his own name when approaching women and just walked around in the wild without so much as a fake mustache. Come on, Ted. So now there were police sketches, descriptions of his car, and his name circulating in the news. Meanwhile, our gal Cheryl over at Central Washington State College campus, security, had gathered enough evidence to link all the recent disappearances to one man, a man who called himself Ted. Cheryl knew that one man had carefully planned and committed all of these crimes, and now the state police and FBI were slowly coming around to her idea. Hmm. So a big group of men had to catch up to one woman who was in college. Sounds. Got it. Got it. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Now, Ted didn't exactly hide. He had a lot of friends. He had a girlfriend and a job. He was a student. He drank in bars and went to large political gatherings. So you're probably thinking that people were bound to recognize him in these sketches. And you would be right. People did recognize him. Lots of locals made the connection and reported to the police that they thought the sketches were of a man named Ted Bundy, who not only looked like the police sketch, but also drove a tan Volkswagen Beetle. What are the odds? Slam dunk, right? (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) I know. Police felt that Ted was a model citizen and didn't fit the profile. He just didn't seem like a monster. At that point, they were receiving upwards of 200 tips a day, and a clean-cut law student just didn't seem like a lead worth exploring. Right. And well, and that's our problem. It is 100% (laughs) our problem. Eventually, Liz, Ted's girlfriend, who we've talked a lot about, was approached with the sketch of Ted, and her blood ran cold. She said it was something about the jawline that told her that this was her Ted. 
So as terrified as she was, Liz gathered all her resolve and made an anonymous call to the damn cops. And good for her. Yes. The police told Liz that she was just being paranoid, that there was no way a man with Ted's record could be the man they were looking for, and furthermore, he drove a tan bug, and the man in question's car was bronze. Oh, no. Her Ted's was tan. So with this information, she could convince herself that it definitely wasn't him. Oh, right, because that's what you said before, that that was like a big deal, that they called it bronze yeah. instead of tan. Mm-hmm. And she was like, well, my my boyfriend's car is tan. They're like, well, then it, po- it couldn't possibly be the same guy. But fun fact, the 1968 Volkswagen Beetle came in a lot of colors, but mm-hmm. bronze wasn't one of them. Yeah, I'm also <laughs> just trying to picture a bronze car. Like, I feel like that would be so noticeable. Yes! Thank you. <laughs> but they'd be like, are you sure it was bronze? Yeah. Do you mean no, they, beige, tan, any, like, bronze? They, they, <laughs> lent, they leaned on bronze? I have no idea what they were thinking running with that, because had this mysterious kidnapper had a custom paint job, he would have been a hell of a lot easier to find. Yeah. But of course he didn't. And they didn't consider, like, maybe it's tan. No, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> we're looking for a penny. What is that, copper? Yeah, copper. That's copper, so. It's fine. <laughs> I get it. They they might as well have been looking for copper. Yeah. They didn't have the right color in the first place. After all the hoopla in July, which was the murders at Lake Sammamish, Ted decided that he would attend the University of Utah Law School. I said previously he was accepted to a Seattle Law School and one in Utah. And so now he decides he's going to go to the one in Utah. Liz asked if he wanted them to move with him. But he just shrugged her off and moved away, leaving them behind. That was really, like, sad for her. She couldn't understand. Yeah, that— is very confusing. This is your boyfriend of a long time being like, I mean, you can do what you want. I'm going to go. Oh. It's like such a stone cold murderer move. Only makes me want him more. Listen, that's probably true. <laughs> so hard to get. I know. <laughs> what can I do? So Ted did carry on with Liz long distance, but dated quite a few girls in Utah at the same time because, of course, he did. That makes sense why he didn't want her to come. Mm hmm. <laughs> He also had to rape and murder a lot of people, and that's difficult when your girlfriend's, like, trying to go to dinner and stuff. Right. So inconvenient. On September 2nd, he raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho. And then, according to his death row confessions, he either disposed of the remains immediately in a nearby river or returned the next day to photograph and dismember the corpse. Mm. But really, who can keep track? Oh, my the hitchhiker would have most likely been an assumed runaway by local police. Okay. Then on September 6th, remember, this is still 1974. We haven't even gone over to a new year yet. Wow. Yeah. A couple of grouse hunters made a discovery near a service road in Issaquah. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Washington State people, you can feel free to tell me if I'm not. Two miles east of Lake Sammamish State Park, the hunters discovered a skull in the brush in the woods a human skull. And when they started poking around, they found that there was more than one skull and a lot of other bones. This turned out to be the remains of Janice Ott and Denise Nasland, the two that were, were that disappeared from Lake Sammamish, plus an extra femur and several vertebrae that we would later come to find out belonged to George Ann Hawkins, mm. who we also talked about in our first episode. Janice and Denise, however, were immediately identified through their dental records. Now we have a murderer. For certain. Liz, catching wind of this, begins to worry again. Ted often went hiking along the route where these bodies were found. What a coincidence. And though she had already mentioned him to the police, they hadn't done anything to investigate. 
On October 2nd, Ted kidnapped 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox in Holiday, Utah, a suburb of Salt Lake City. According to his death row confession, a lot of these are according to that because he just spewed information right before he was killed. Her remains were buried near Capitol Reef National Park, though none of them were ever found. Nancy had been listed as a runaway. She had left her school to buy a pack of gum and never returned. Later, it would be reported that she was last seen riding in a tan Volkswagen Beetle, not bronze. Runaways were also put in a file and forgotten about at this point in time. Police just couldn't be bothered with them. So annoying. Yep, if you ran away, they didn't even look for you, really. They were like, well, they wanted to go. That's it. I feel like that makes sense for a certain age, but not 16. No. I mean, if you're like 25 and you leave, like, there's only so much you can do. But that's a child. Right. A child that didn't even, like, leave from her home. She, like, walked out of school and just never came back. And they were like, eh, she ran away. Girls run away. There's nothing they can do about it. That is, until one of the girls who goes missing is the police chief's daughter. Oh. Now they'll kick in a year. Exactly. On October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, the 17-year-old daughter of the police chief of Midvale, Utah, disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor. Her nude body was found in a nearby mountainous area nine days later by a local deer hunter. Man, hunters are really seeing some shit in this case. Postmortem examinations of Melissa indicated that she may have remained alive for up to seven days following her disappearance. Right? This is... Little there is there is sorry, little more information available on Melissa. I'm not sure what she was like or who she was getting pizza with or why Ted chose to keep her alive when he never did that with another victim before or after her to the best of modern forensic knowledge. Maybe he found out that she was the police chief's daughter. Maybe. And just felt like maybe he got confused and didn't know what to do, but then it was just too far gone. I think he probably left her for dead. And or then that. she just like he thought he killed her. died. That's a horrible thing to say. Yeah. But, I mean, if she was unconscious and he usually left his victim's bodies and then came back a few weeks later. Oh, yeah, right. And she's in like a mountain in the freezing weather. I mean, it's, it's truly horrible to think about. But I, in my opinion, that seems to be the most likely. Mm. I know. It, what an awful thought, right? But that's what this guy is. But what I do know is that she sure did make news. And now the community was talking. But the community wouldn't have much time to react before yet another girl turned up dead. On October 31st, 17-year-old Laura Ann, oh, I didn't look up how to pronounce her last name, Aimee, A-I-M-E, Aim, Aimee, left a Halloween party at a local cafe in Lehigh, Utah, which is just 26 miles south of where Melissa had disappeared in Midvale. Laura Ann left to buy cigarettes and was never seen alive again. Her naked body was found by hikers this time, Uh, to the northeast in American Fork Canyon on Thanksgiving Day, frozen solid. Both she and Melissa had been beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with nylon stockings. During his confessions, Ted would go on to say that he visited both bodies for a time, so he did go back to her later, washing their hair, changing their clothes, and putting makeup and nail polish on them before abusing the bodies more and taking Polaroid photos of his handiwork. Because remember, when asked why he did this, he said that he didn't want all of his hard work to go to waste. Hate him. Yeah, and and hate him up. This guy is, mm-hmm. absolutely. So at this point, we have a body of evidence against the man who committed these crimes, even though they were in different states. We have several crime scenes, skeletal remains, actual intact bodies, a description of Ted, and eyewitness accounts. So why is he still walking around freely? 
Why wasn't there enough to catch him? To modernize, this case looks relatively easy to solve. There's ample evidence, names have been named, and there was bound to be DNA everywhere. But this isn't a time before DNA evidence could be used. Now, while I firmly believe that police passed right over Ted Bundy because they couldn't believe that someone like him could be guilty, it also cannot be ignored that forensics were not what they are now. So, Leslie, why don't you tell us what we're dealing with here? What would authorities in the 1974 era have been able to do to investigate? And did they truly do enough? Right. So, like you said, in the 70s, we didn't have DNA testing yet. Uh, It wasn't until the 1930s that we even had our first crime lab. Um, And that, I mean, that seems like a while ago, but... Not in comparison. Not really in comparison. So, it would take decades for... And that was just our first crime lab. So, now imagine how long it takes for all the departments to get crime labs. Oh, my labs. God. Um, and probably, so long. Probably at this point, it still wasn't, probably not all of them had crime labs. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. a standard when building the buildings, obviously. Now, plus, that takes a while to catch on. Like, one yep. police department has it, but and nobody else knows about it. Exactly, yeah. Um, it was also in the 30s that the polygraph and lie detector psychology, like, came into play. But lie detection technology and psychology is, like, still continuing to advance at that point. Yeah. I mean, Um, even now it's dicey. It's still dicey. And obviously most of the techniques they were using probably weren't really working for them. Of course, yeah. Uh, In the 60s, so now we're jumping, like, from the 30s to the 60s, like, very little had happened. They got those crime labs. Mm -hmm. That In the 60s, voice recordings were now allowed in court as evidence. So that was big. Oh, wow. Um, They hadn't been, I mean, obviously with recordings and things like that, it wasn't as huge, but just reminds me of like the Nixon tapes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The FBI had started a national crime system in 1967. So now there was a national computerized filing system where they can add wanted people, stolen vehicles, weapons, but it was still pretty new in operation and it didn't fully link up. Like you'd have to, that was all just This isn't even 10 years too. It's 1974. Right. So that's- very new. Right. Hair and fiber analysis was considered standard. And so this is during the 70s. This was pretty standard and not seen as controversial yet. So in the 70s and even 80s, the ability to collect hair and fiber at a crime was a great way to match its victims or with the, or suspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, researchers believe that you could identify a person through their hair. And this is exactly what I thought, too, because it came... It's like a huge trope in crime fiction, you mm-hmm. know? However, it had not been proven, and many researchers believed it was inherently subjective. So at that time, it was still like, we don't really think that this is going to work. And they're like, no, 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 like this one scientist thinks that he can connect that one hair to one person in the world. And they're like, I don't think you can no. do that. And now, even if you go to their site, you mm-hmm. would see that it's like, there's like 30 different ways of collecting hair and what that could mean. At one point, I talk about this in one of our previous cases, you need like the very root of a hair to even use it as like, to even have it be remotely useful. Unless you're like, same color. So we can say like, probably. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's about it. And obviously that would be really exciting if just collecting hair could be that fan, you know, find who they're looking for. Um, so the FBI really tried to push that narrative, like, okay, let's collect hair, see if we can match it with these people. But in 1984 is when they kind of went back on their word. They're like, okay, we can't 
really use hair and fiber analysis mm. to well, this is positively right match. Sweet spot because, you know, it's bef- this this all shows up before that. Right. So we would still be in the hair days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 1974, they had advances in residue detection. So they can now detect gunshot residue, which can link a suspect to crime scene and can show how close that suspect was to a gun. However, Bundy didn't really use a gun. So I, I was going to say, God damn it. I, I mean, I never <laughs> wish anybody shot anybody else, but like, boy, would it have been helpful. <laughs> In 1975, they had an advance in manual fingerprints, and the first fingerprint read was installed at the FBI. Okay. So, um, again, just the FBI had it for, Mm -hmm. like, a manual. Like, you can see it through the computer. So before then, it was just looking through the papers. And you have had to have gone through the system to even be there and for them to collect it and for them to even suspect you in that area of – of having it. Wow. <laughs> so that's it was really it was really really hard. And then mind you again in 1975 if that's just the first year of that yeah. how long is that going to take for all of those Forever. fingertips and <laughs> you know all the computers to be reading each other. Oh my god. <sighs> There's so much. So when I was going through what forensics could do at this point, mm-hmm. it really was not much. It yeah. was just really good. You'd have to just be a very good detective to be putting the pieces together. Mm-hmm. But if in your head you kept shutting down an obvious option because of a few factors. Yeah. He's a law student. He's a good-looking guy. He's charismatic. I enjoyed all his coworkers mm-hmm. and liked him. They have nothing bad to say. Even his girlfriend is might have something nice to say about it. Oh, you know? she, and yeah, she does. Yeah. And if they weren't familiar with serial killers yet, and Which they still they're think not that they're not until 1980, right? So you know, again, if they're still thinking like not one person could kill this many people, yep. they there was a lot going against them. Absolutely. At this point. Okay, so they did what they could, kind of, but also they were they still they were, were like not so, that guy. <laughs> yeah, they were just so limited. Yeah, and. Yeah, this was this was a new kind of killer for them. So we can be mad somewhat, but not as mad. Mm-hmm. Got it. Thank you, Leslie. You're welcome. It was at this time that a friend of Liz's, who was visiting from Utah, because remember Liz is from Utah, came out to Seattle to visit her. And when she arrived, she cautiously told Liz, quote, it's happening in Utah. And Liz knew exactly what she meant and exactly who was to blame. It couldn't be a mere coincidence that Ted had relocated to Utah just days before the murders began there. Liz's friend recounted the story of Melissa Smith, and Liz knew it was time for her to call the damn cops again. Good. Yep. I like that she doesn't give up. Oh, no, she never gives up. And this time she chooses not to be anonymous. The cops tell Liz that he just isn't a good match, and they've heard Ted's name before, and a good guy like him could never do the things she's accusing him of, so that she just must be angry because her boyfriend left her, which I want to kill everybody for. This is the only part that it's, that's, I think, the main problem with the police department right Mm now. You're just an angry woman. (laughs) You're going to ruin this guy's life. Stop it. But so as to do their due diligence, detectives did come out and take a statement from Liz and gathered a few snapshots she had of Ted, supposedly to show to witnesses. Now, the police take all this information and just forget it exists, basically. They don't even pass it along to the Utah Police Department. Washington police show the pictures Liz gave them to precisely one witness— who claims that Ted is too old to have been the guy who had approached her, and then that was enough for them. They were like, well, this one person said it's not him, so we're done. Right. (sighs) On November 11th, something miraculous occurs. One of Ted's victims escapes. Carol Durant was an 18-year-old Salt Lake City area resident. 
She liked to spend time outdoors and visit her grandparents' ranch. She was beautiful with long, cascading brown hair and an open, honest face. Carol knew there were girls disappearing, but like many other girls at the time, she assumed nothing would ever happen to her. She was innocent and happy and involved in her own life, which is how a teenager is supposed to be. And if we're being honest with ourselves, it's how we would be. Right. Carol has a high, soft, sweet voice and an accommodating smile. And on November 11th, she decided to drive down to the Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah, to visit the bookstore. Murray was just one mile from Midvale. She parked her car, walked into the mall, and up the stairs heading towards the bookstore when she was approached by a man claiming to be a police officer. He said his name was Officer Roseland, and he had, been, he had seen someone in the parking lot trying to break into Carol's car. He asked if Carol would come with him out to her car to see if anything had been stolen and to make a formal police report so they could charge this person. Carol, feeling a little suspicious, asked to see some identification, and he showed her a badge. Now, of course, this isn't a real badge, but be honest. How many of you would recognize the difference between a real police badge and a fake? I used to say this all the time. I, you wouldn't know, I right? I don't know. Yeah. They just flashed one. I'd be like, I don't. Yeah, he just pulled it out. You'd be I like, I have that in my costume upstairs from Halloween last year. Yeah. <laughs> and you could fool people yeah. with it. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Maybe do it. I don't know. I don't know that my costume would <laughs> fool people, but. <laughs> no, it would not. <laughs> but I hear some of you saying that you would have known the difference. But would you have at 18? Would you? Huh? No, I don't huh? think you would have. Not unless you had a parent on the force. Right. Uh, but Carol said, quote, I was probably trying to be nice. I wanted to do the right thing. Of course you were, Carol. And fuck the hundreds of people who asked you why you went with him. Of course she went with him. We're taught to trust the police. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the female slogan. Yeah. Just trying to be nice. It is. We got to stop. <laughs> I'm guilty of it all the time. You told me not to be so nice not an hour ago. I did. That's true. <laughs> My best friend tells me that all the time. She's like, you got to say no and stop being so nice. (laughs) Carol went outside to the parking lot where Officer Roseland told her he would like her to come with him to the police station now to file out a police report. He said they had caught the man who was burglarizing her car and just needed her to formally press charges. Carol agrees, and Officer Roseland brings her over to his beat-up tan Volkswagen bug. Just a warning. You don't ever have to go with the cops alone unless you're under arrest. You can say no when a situation feels unsafe. You can ask for an additional officer. You can ask to have someone accompany you to make this report. You can take your own car if you need to go to the police station and you're neither in trouble nor inebriated. But kind, innocent, and beautiful Carol got in. That's so good to know because I think about that sometimes when Mm -hmm. we record late sometimes. So when I'm driving home, I just think, what if for any reason I got pulled over, my light was out or anything like that? And I always get nervous about there just being one police officer. You can. You don't have to pull over. You can drive to a local police station. Okay. If there's cop lights behind you, that's another bit of information. You don't have to pull over the second they put their lights on. You can. when you, Once you pull over, if you're, you want to go to a lighted area or a parking lot or something, you can. And you can say, I didn't feel safe. I wanted to be in a public area. There's records of women who just drove directly to the police station to talk to the cops because they wanted to be around more people. That is within your rights. Wow. Great. Okay. Yeah. So if you're feeling unsafe, go somewhere where you feel safe. Trust yourself. And don't get into like a Volkswagen bug with a cop ever. I'm not judging her though. Again, she thought this was a cop. Maybe he was undercover. She doesn't know. Officer Roseland drove them along in complete silence for a little ways. His demeanor had melted away into an icy, cold, angry stare. Carol asked questions, but he wouldn't speak until they got far enough out on a desolate road that other cars seemed to be nothing more than a memory. 
And then Officer Rosalind pulled over quite suddenly, slamming the tires into the curb and immediately slapped handcuffs on Carol, who began to scream. So Officer Rosalind pulled out a gun and calmly said, I'll blow your head off. And Carol could only think, quote, go ahead, I'll die right here. She said she had been told not to fight. She had been told to let the assault happen to save her own life. And so she laid there while he came for her. But all she could think as she shook violently was that her parents would never, ever find her body, that she would die and they would never know what happened to her. She would be gone, nothing more than bones in the woods. And so she decided that she couldn't let that happen. Realizing that in a haze, the officer had cuffed both handcuffs to one of her wrists, and unbeknownst to him, her hands were quite free, Carol opened the passenger door and rolled out onto the ground. Officer Rosalind, who we now all know as Ted, exited the car and went after her with a crowbar. He attempted to grab her and hit her in the head, but Carol got away, and just then, she noticed a car coming at them. Carol got to her feet and ran into the road, which caused the car to slow down enough for her to dive at it and jump into the passenger side door. The car, bless them, kept driving. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine a panicked teenager diving into your passenger seat? Wow. <laughs> I know. <gasps> now, I just like didn't breathe. <laughs> I know. Wow. Now, mind you, I wonder if that would have felt different if it was a a boy or a guy sure jumping into, like, I wonder if they would have stopped if it was a guy jumping in. It might have. They might have, I don't know. Or maybe he saw the guy, maybe like vision-wise, maybe they saw they at least the crowbar. But just the fact that it was like a young girl, she I would have just, kept, I'd been like, yes, bitch. Yeah, <laughs> let's go, gun it. <laughs> exactly. And of course, she's like got in the car like sobbing and obviously oh, been through yes, something. Yeah. So Looks can be deceiving. Do not fuck with Carol. Put that on a sticker. I'm here for it. I tip my hat and curtsy to Carol because sometimes I wear a hat. And honestly, I think we can do both. But here's the thing about November 8th. So far, Ted was unsuccessful and the roaring violence in his head that needed to kill wasn't going to stop. So he moved on down the road about 20 miles to a place called Bountiful, Utah, where he saw a high school, Viewmont High School to be specific, with lots of cars parked in the auditorium parking lot. There was a play that night and lots of students and their families were in attendance. So Ted pulled in and parked. A teacher, this was a woman teacher, of course, by the way, was standing in the lobby. She had been helping with tickets and ushering people to their seats when she noticed a strange, well-dressed man walk in. He approached her with an easy, friendly smile and constant, unwavering eye contact, which, that's not intimidating at all. Mm-mm. Fun fact, animals use and perceive eye contact as a threat and a challenge to assert dominance. People are just big-brained animals, so you do the math. The man told the teacher that she had really beautiful eyes and asked if she would come out into the parking lot to help him with his car. She said she couldn't help him, but she'd be happy to get a few of the boys to help him out. Perfect. Mm-hmm. He declined. He said, no, 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 I don't need that, and then moved on. You need one, one woman to help you, but boys coming to help you is not okay. Right. You're a psychopath. The teacher got a very strange and menacing vibe from the stranger, obviously. We all just did. And went on to tell a few other adults about him. So she went back in and was like, there's a weirdo here. The stranger found a seat in the audience and the show began. About halfway through the first half, 17-year-old Deborah Jean Kent left the auditorium. She couldn't stay for the whole play because she had to pick up her brother. After Deborah walked out, the stranger got up out of his seat and exited as well. Deborah Jean Kent was never seen alive again. Oh, it's and like I know how this all ends, but it makes me so mad. I know. Her parents kept the porch light on just in case she came home 
until Ted confessed to her murder just before his execution in 1989. That's so sad. I would do the same thing. So would I. Deborah's remains. <laughs> I know. I oh my this God. is I know. Okay. It's okay. That one is so sad. <laughs> Deborah's remains, well, just her patella, which is I think is your kneecap. Yes. And that's the only piece they had of her, were finally identified in 2015. Wow. Just the patella. And they just identified it. Yeah, that's the little bone you can move. Yeah, the little floaty guy, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. Now the worst part of the story is that people watched it happen. That teacher never forgave herself. Oh God, yeah. She I was watched, wondering about she her. She watched her walk out. And she watched the she watched Ted Bundy stand up in his seat and walk out right after her. These are all things that for okay, so already the police department now and anything we watch is always like we have to follow a lead no matter how uh-huh. annoying it is. Yeah. And some of that is probably from this case. Absolutely. Like they have to follow a lead and they have to keep pushing. Mm-hmm. And then things like this where I would, of course, called if we had a school security or maybe yeah. one of the fathers in the audience or something just been like, mm-hmm. can you just like walk out and make sure that she's okay? Me too. Or – Just any, I would have even like walked out or, you know, then called the cops or anything like that. Just this is suspicious, but it's because of cases like this. Right. This isn't even in their mind then. She probably was like, well, that guy likes a pretty girl and that's it. Well, I talked to my mother-in-law who in the 70s, she hitchhiked all the time. Oh my God. And that was the 70s was a huge hitchhiking. Like girls, young girls were He killed a hitchhiker. Maybe more, maybe a lot. We don't, we don't truly no, nor will we ever know how many people he killed. And and though I always hear people say, well, there just wasn't wasn't as scary as it is now. And I'm like, all of the serial killers were from then. Yes, they were. <laughs> people just didn't know. They didn't know. <sighs> well, this teacher spoke to Ted and felt that something wasn't right with him, but she just assumed that bad things didn't happen in her small town. Yeah. After the police were notified of Deborah's disappearance, which happened pretty quickly because she was supposed to pick up her brother, and she didn't arrive, and then she never arrived home, Mm -hmm. they asked the people who had attended the play if they had seen anything odd. Several students and teachers reported seeing a strange man, and two of them said he had asked them to come into the parking lot with them to identify a car. They said he lurked around outside before coming in and left shortly after Deborah did. Outside in the parking lot, Police found the key that would fit perfectly inside the lock of the handcuffs Carol Durant escaped wearing. Ooh, okay. By December, Liz had heard of all the additional incidents thus far in Utah and decided she would call the damn Utah cops herself. Great. Yes, Liz. And this is call number three. The Utah police simply added Ted's name to a list they had but told Lids they had no evidence to link the Utah crimes to those that occurred in Washington. You know, except a very good suspect who had been in both areas named Ted driving the car in question who looked like the sketches and had a string of virtually identical identical crimes connected to both places. But, you know, it's probably not the same guy. Totally not Ted. He's too normal. What they're looking for is a slobbering lizard person, and they're pretty easy to find, so things are looking up. Right, because there's so many aliens. (laughs) There's a lot of them. (laughs) Zero aliens. (laughs) In January of 1975, it's finally 1975. Great. (laughs) Ted came home to Seattle for a week after his final exams. He spent the week with Liz and Molly. Liz does not tell him she has reported him to the police, and after spending the week with him, feels like she was wrong. This is the Ted she had loved for years. He couldn't be the one killing these women. He was giving her daughter piggyback rides and holding her hand in public. She remembered what it was like when he loved her, which made things briefly different, like a mist of sedatives washing over her, allowing her to forget. Liz promises to fly out to Utah to visit Ted in August, and then he leaves. 
But at this point, heading right back to Utah to resume his activities probably wouldn't have been the wisest of moves, so Ted heads off to Colorado. On January 12, 1975, a 23-year-old registered nurse named Karen Eileen Campbell was staying at the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass Village, Colorado with her boyfriend. The two were having dinner in the inn's restaurant when Karen decided that she needed to pop up to her room for something around 8 o'clock, and she never came back. Carol was seen walking down the hallway, getting on the elevator, and getting off at the second floor. She was abducted just steps from her room, though no one heard or saw a struggle. So her boyfriend believes that wherever she went, she went willingly. Because he probably was like, please help me out, or I'm a cop. And she was like, okay. Right. Karen's nude body was found a month later on Owl Creek Road, which was just outside of the resort. Karen had been brutally raped and killed by blows to her head from a blunt instrument. Her body also bore deep cuts from a sharp weapon. And then they took a little break. Tired. Right. A lot of killing. (laughs) Sure. But on March 1st, 1975, a group of forestry students completing a course up on Taylor Mountain in King County, Washington, Ted's old stopping grounds, came upon a collection of human skeletal remains. Pathologists would find that these remains belonged to Linda Healy, Susan Rancourt, Brenda Ball, and Roberta Kathy Parks. Those are our victims from the first installment. Okay. They had all suffered blunt force trauma to the head. And when I say severe blunt force trauma, I mean severe. These skulls are decimated in areas. Some of them are missing the entire facial structure. Wow. I'll post pictures in the photo suite because they really do demonstrate, like, the severity of these crimes. Now, as you might have guessed, this was pretty big news. Jeez, you guys, I'm stumped. Who could be killing all these women? Certainly not that guy with all the evidence pouring at him. We should probably let that guy go. He's a real future ahead of him. You know who thought that maybe he shouldn't be wandering around murdering at will? Liz. Liz probably was starting to feel insane at this point, but to her credit, for one more time, she called the damn cops. Not one more time. Sorry, this is the fourth time. We have one more. We do, yeah. Yeah. This time, Liz, and they blew her off again. They were like, no, it's not him. Go home. This time, Liz went so far afterwards as to ask her father, who had ties to the Utah State Police Department, to give them a call, thinking that they would take a man more seriously than they would a woman. And she was probably right. Liz's father, however, refused. He said, quote, if she was wrong, she would ruin Ted's career. Oh, my gosh. Never mind the fact that if she was right, which if he listened to one single word out of her mouth, he would see that she was, this man had killed a ton of women and very clearly had no intention of stopping. This is not the first, nor is it the last time that Ted's potential career would be ranked over the lives of 28 women. And this statistic should turn your stomach. It's insane. Eat this. Yep. Liz saw this moment as her father choosing Ted over her, and I think she was right. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, back in Colorado, on March 15th, 100 miles northeast of Snowmass, where his last victim had gone missing, 26-year-old Vale ski instructor Julie Cunningham disappeared while walking from her apartment to a dinner date with a friend. Ted would later tell the police during his confessions that he approached Julie on crutches and asked her to help him carry his ski boots to his car. Being the nice lady that she was, she agreed. And when they got to his car, he clubbed her in the head and handcuffed her, then drove her to a secondary location 90 miles away where he assaulted and strangled her. A few weeks later, he would drive back to visit her remains. Because, you know, can't waste that hard work. Right. Next, on April 6th, 25-year-old Denise Lynn Oliverson disappeared near the Utah-Colorado border in Grand Junction while riding her bicycle to her parents' house. She had had an argument with her husband and was going to her parents' house just to cool off for a little while. Her bicycle and sandals were found under a viaduct near a railroad bridge. Ted would confess to her murder before his execution 
1989. Guys, this is a long list of murders and there's more. Like, it just goes on. I'm here for all of them. I mean, I feel like we need to, to say all of them. Mm-hmm. On May 6th, Ted Lord, 12-year-old, because people forget he also did this to little girls. Yeah. Lynette Don Culver into his car right in front of Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho, in broad daylight. Lynette was leaving school for her lunch break and never returned. Investigators figured she ran away to a local Indian reservation for absolutely no reason. Why? Why is this a thing? I don't know. They were like, she must have ran away and went to the reservation. Why? She had no ties to it at all. There was no reason for them to believe that. And also, like, what have indigenous people done that you need to associate that? Like, what are you doing? Well, I guess that was still at that time mm. with some prejudices I there. I don't... Oh. During his confessions, Ted said he drowned and then sexually assaulted her in a hotel room before disposing of her body in a river north of Pocatello. Sorry, is this in Colorado still or is this Utah? Uh, this is in Idaho. This Idaho, particular oh, right. One. Okay. Sometimes on the way places, he stops in Idaho. Yeah. You know, you gotta, you gotta spread it out. A month later, Ted would return to Washington to spend a week with Liz and Molly because no evidence is as strong as the hold of a manipulative man. Liz never spoke of her calls to police, and Ted knew how to work this situation. Meanwhile, right before he had come to Washington, Ted entertained three co-workers from the Washington State DES, including a young woman named Carol Ann Boone, with whom he was also romantically involved. He entertained these people in his home in Salt Lake City for a week. Now remember that name, because she's going to come back with a vengeance later. Oh, and also, during this time, Ted was in a relationship with yet a third woman who, who prefers to remain anonymous. Wow. Mm-hmm. Lots of girlfriends. On June 28th, Susan Curtis vanished from the campus of Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Susan's murder would be the last one Ted confessed to, doing so just moments before he entered the execution chamber. The bodies of Nancy Wilcox, Deborah Kent, Julie Cunningham, Denise Oliverson, Lynette Culver, and Susan Curtis— have never been recovered. Washington State finally realized they needed to be a little more active in catching this man as they now had a literal pile of bones on their hand. And so they did something they'd never done before. They resorted to, and you spoke about this briefly, to a brand new strategy called compiling a database. They used the King County payroll computer, which was like a huge primitive Mm -hmm. monster computer, but they only that's the only one they had access to, and it's nice to see them actually trying to do something, so I'm not going to criticize their computer. Mm -hmm. After inputting the many lists they had compiled, which were like classmates and acquaintances of each victim, Volkswagen owners named Ted, known sex offenders, and so on, they searched the computer for coincidences. Like, where did these things collide? Out of thousands of names, 26 turned up on four lists, and one was Ted Bundy. Detectives also manually compiled a list of their 100 best suspects, and Ted was on that list as well. So now it seems as though we're getting somewhere. But we wouldn't have to get far because Utah was about to beat them to the punch. Mm -hmm. On August 16, 1975, Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward saw a tan Volkswagen Beetle cruising around some local neighborhoods. And then, when the man in the Beetle caught sight of the officer, it sped off. Which is super suspicious. Right. Officer, yeah, you can't see a cop and then run away. I mean, I feel like I want to every time. I know, I know. I slow down. I'm like, yeah, oh, me too. Whatever. So Officer Hayward pulled Ted over, only to find that the car's passenger seat had been removed, and in the back was Ted's now famous kill kit, which included a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pack, and other items Officer Hayward initially assumed were just tools you used to rob places. 
He thought Ted was looking for a house to burglarize because he was, like, crawling around neighborhoods in his car real slow with no lights on. Ted explained that the ski mask was for skiing and that he had found the handcuffs in a dumpster because we all take dumpster handcuffs. Right, yeah. I love dumpster diving. The things I come out of there with. (laughs) I want a character in something whose name is dumpster handcuffs. (laughs) Old dumpster handcuffs. Sounds like a always sunny. Yeah. (laughs) Somebody draw me dumpster handcuffs, please. (laughs) And the rest of the things he claimed were common household items. But nice try, Ted, because Officer Hayward wasn't buying it. Detective Jerry Thompson remembers a similar suspect and a similar car description from the November 1974 kidnapping of Carol Durant, and he recalled Ted's name from Liz's December 1974 phone call. Thank God. Detectives then go to search Ted's apartment, and they find a guide to a Colorado ski resort with a checkmark by the Wildwood Inn, where Karen Campbell had disappeared, and a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play in Bountiful, where Deborah Kent had disappeared. The police couldn't find sufficient evidence to detain Ted, even though this seems like enough to me, and he was released on his own recognizance. Ted later said that the people searching his apartment had failed to find a massive collection of Polaroids of his victims, which he then went right back to that apartment and destroyed. Mm. They dismissed him. They were right there with him. It's like when the cops walked into Jeffrey Dahmer's house and like one room away, there was a pile of bodies, but they were like, take care of your boyfriend, bye! It's awful. But we're not even done yet. (laughs) The next day, Liz runs into Ted's old landlady, and the two strike up a casual conversation. The landlady mentions that Ted had been arrested in Utah, and the police had called her to ask about him. And so, for the fifth time, Liz calls the damn cops. I hope this is it. (laughs) This time, though, Liz asks to speak to the female detective, Kathleen McChesney, who she knew was working on the case. And Kathleen immediately took her seriously. Kathleen had come to this case from the sex crimes division and recognized how traumatized Liz was. She had her immediately come down to the station for a face-to-face conversation. So, one call to a woman. One. And Liz is in there talking. Love it. Five other men did absolutely nothing. I blame their parents for that. (laughs) Yeah, cool story, you guys. Liz tells Kathleen her story, and Kathleen fills her in on Ted's arrest and then shows her photographs of the things they found in his car, which for Liz is, of course, incredibly jarring and feels a whole lot like proof that her suspicions were correct. Mind you, this is not something that she wanted to feel. She didn't want him to be guilty at all. It was something she was morally compelled to do. And at this time, Liz was still in contact with Ted. Technically, they were still together. Mm Mm-hmm. Kathleen knew this, and so she tried to handle the situation as delicately as possible. The savvy and compassion of this female officer versus the dismissiveness of every man, including her own father, that Liz encountered should not go unnoticed. The Utah police finally speak to Liz, and she tells them that she had discovered objects that she, quote, couldn't understand in her house and in Ted's apartment from time to time. These items included crutches, a a bag of plaster of Paris that he admitted to stealing from a medical supply company, and a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking. Additional objects included surgical gloves, a knife in a wooden case that he kept in his glove compartment, and a sack full of women's clothing that did not belong to Liz. Not unusual. (laughs) Liz also told them that Ted was perpetually in debt, and that she suspected he had stolen almost everything of significant value that he possessed. 
The detectives also confirmed that Ted had not been with Liz on any of the nights during which the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished, nor on the day that Janice Ott and Denise Naslin were abducted. Shortly thereafter, Liz was interviewed again by Detective Kathleen McChesney, who told Liz about Diane and her brief engagement to Ted around Christmas of 1973. Remember Diane Edwards? Yes. This did not go over well, obviously. Mm. Meanwhile, Ted had sold his Volkswagen bug to a Midvale teen, and the police got a hold of it. And the FBI found hairs, like you mentioned, they're looking for hair now, matching several of Ted's victims. And on October 2nd, the Utah police brought Carol DeRanch in to identify Ted in a lineup, which she did in two seconds flat. And there are pictures of this lineup. Now, the Utah Police Department, can they can arrest Ted and put him in jail to await trial. During this time, Dr. Donna Schramm, who we talked about in the first episode, from the Seattle Rape Prevention Project, is contacted and questioned about Ted. And now she realizes that it has been him all along. She profiled this man, a man who turned out to be someone who was in her office, a man she knew well, a man she told police personally could not have possibly committed these crimes. This is a woman with a PhD in psychology who worked tirelessly to help the victims of rape, and she couldn't see it right under her own nose. Her guilt, which is unnecessary, Ted manipulated everyone, is palpable. She said, quote, He did not do one positive thing for this world and killed so many young women who would have. Gosh, I just feel bad for these people that came in contact with him that are like, now I see it, you know? You know, and they just feel so awful. Mm -hmm. So as soon as Ted gets to jail, he starts writing letters to Liz, telling her how much he loves her and being like super sappy and romantic. There are transcripts from some of these online. I don't feel like reading nice things he had to say, but you can if you want. After his parents bailed him out of prison, which they did right away, Ted went directly to Liz's house to be with her because every time he goes to be with her, she stops suspecting him. Right. Liz then stops working with the police Mm. and decides that Ted was innocent. When people ask Liz why women don't leave, she simply answers, quote, they have hope. Yeah. And that's true. You don't ever want to believe that somebody is capable of this, let alone the person that you love and put time and energy into. Yeah. And that is kind of, you know, you think is securing a life for you. Little did she know that he was like never going to be able to become a lawyer. But I mean, he probably would have passed the bar. For sure. Because he just would have been able to, because he's that kind of guy. Absolutely. No, you're you're totally right. <laughs> he would have failed all his classes, but passed the bar. <laughs> well, yeah. He, he did, had mediocre grades, but was accepted to programs just based on his professors yeah. giving him recommendations. I Yeah. That's how he got into law school. Yeah. He was that convincing. He was that good of a con man. Huh. <sighs> <sighs> On February 23rd, 1976, Ted went on trial in Utah for the kidnapping of Carol DeRanch and was convicted. Liz accompanied him to court and testified on his behalf. That's so tough. I know. An additional search of Ted's apartment had uncovered a large stack of credit card receipts, many of them for gas in the towns where the girls had gone missing. Mm -hmm. So if you looked at these receipts, it's just a map of where girls went missing. It just pins him to every single town. Ted, after a lot of protest and foot dragging, is extradited to Colorado to stand trial for the murder of Karen Campbell. Now, Ted works his case studiously, and a court reporter warns the prison guards that she knew Ted was going to escape, and she knew how he was going to do it. She, 
This is a woman. So obviously, they didn't listen to her. Right. Nonetheless, she tells the guard that Ted goes to the law library all the time because, of course, he has elected to represent himself. He's a genius lawyer. (sighs) And while he's there, he frequently asks to make Xeroxes. And when he's supposed to be making copies, what he's actually doing is canvassing the area. And because he was defending himself, the judge allowed Ted permission to not be handcuffed and shackled during his trial. And so, just like the court reporter said, he made a break for it. During his trial! Yeah. He's like, on trial, they have a recess, and he's like, I'm going to go. He asked to visit the courthouse's law library during this research to, to during this uh, recess to do a little last-minute research for his case. He wanted to, like, find a related thing. That's it. But when he did so, he ducked behind a bookcase where he knew he was out of view from the guards that were watching him, opened a second-floor window, and just jumped the fuck out. <sighs> Isn't, like, 18 feet up or something? Yeah, it's, it was not close. He injured his right ankle pretty badly yeah. when he landed. Once he got to the ground, he took off an outer layer of clothing because he had layered up Mm -hmm. so that nobody would recognize what he was wearing and then walked through Aspen because roadblocks were being set up on the outskirts of town. He then hiked southward into Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. The next day, he left the cabin and continued south toward the town of Crested Butte but became lost in the forest. So then for two days, he just like wandered around with no direction. Right. (laughs) looking like a crazy banged up mountain man. So on June 10th, he broke into a camping trailer on Maroon Lake where he found food and a ski parka. But instead of continuing southward, he walked back north towards Aspen because he's probably pretty confused at this point. Oh, that's right. He wouldn't have known Mm. which way. Well, he was like in the woods. I think he just like wandered around. You would think one of those places would have a compass. (laughs) I mean, might think. Betty wishes he had his crutches now too. Yeah. That ankle. (laughs) limping around. He walked back towards Aspen, avoiding the roadblocks and search parties along the way. So he's in a place where people are looking for him, just walking around. Right. Nobody got him. Because when you're confident, they just let you walk by. Yeah. It's confidence, man. You can do anything. handsome, nice man limping along. (laughs) He's so rugged. (laughs) Mountain man over here. Is that a three-day beard you're sporting? Well. Yes. Oh, no. He looks like he just jumped out of a two-floor building. <laughs> he just jumped out a window, didn't he? <laughs> Can I help you, sir? Three days later, he stole a car at the edge of Aspen Golf Course. Cold, sleep-deprived, and in constant ankle pain, he drove back into Aspen, where two police officers noticed his car weaving in and out of its lane and pulled him over. All his arrests are from being pulled over in a car. He had been a fugitive for six days. And in the car that they pulled him over in, they found maps of the mountain area around Aspen that prosecutors were using to demonstrate the the location of Karen Campbell's body. Because as his own attorney, Ted had the rights of discovery, so he could have all of their evidence. Indicating that this escape was not spontaneous, but it was carefully planned. So he had been gathering the stuff from them and using maps. Ted was hauled back to jail. Now it should be noted that at this point, Ted was only being held for kidnapping. The case against him for the other murders at this point was pretty flimsy. And with a good defense attorney, he could have walked away with just a slap on the wrist. But Ted knew he was guilty, and so he devised another plan. Oh, good. Yes. Somehow, while in jail, Ted acquired a detailed floor plan of the Colorado jail and a hacksaw blade from other inmates. Because he was immediately good at prison dealings. 
and managed to accumulate $500 in cash. Later, Ted told detectives that the money was given to him by visitors, mostly Carol Ann Boone. Remember her? During the evenings, while other inmates were showering, Ted slowly sawed a hole about one square foot in size between the steel reinforcing bars in his cell's ceiling. And during the six months while he was doing these things, he lost 35 pounds. Right. Then, with his new skinny frame, he figured out a way to wriggle through this hole into the crawl space above. And with his plan set, all Ted had to do was wait for the right moment. He was already thin. He looks sick I know. at this point. He's just a head, Yeah, basically. he does look like a bobblehead. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> on the night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and nonviolent prisoners on furlough with their families, which I didn't know was a thing, you could just leave jail for a few days because oh. it's Christmas. Ted piled books and files into his bed, covered them with a blanket to simulate a sleeping body, then climbed into the crawl space. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer, which was right above, who was out for the evening with his wife. Ted then changed into the jailer's street clothes and walked right out the front door to freedom. Wow. Confidence. After stealing a car, Ted drove eastward out of Glenwood Springs, but his stolen car broke down right in the mountains of Interstate 70. But lucky for him, a passing driver gave him a ride into Vail. How nice. Yeah. From there, he caught a bus to Denver, where he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. Back in Glenwood Springs, the jail's crew did not discover Ted's escape until noon the next day. Jeez. And at that point, more than 17 hours had gone by. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. By then, Ted was already in Chicago. And probably there, they were like, we just won't bother Ted. He's like, he's probably a a nice guy in the cell. So they were like, we're not going to bother him. Yep. We'll let him sleep in today. Yeah. They didn't even look at him. (laughs) 17 hours. Wow. From Chicago. They probably thought he was so skinny that they just didn't see him. (laughs) We put all the books in his bed, too. That's right. So it looked like there was like, he's been sleeping for a long-ass time. We should go poke that guy. (laughs) He's a tired little guy. Oh, he's a pile of books. Never mind. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yep. It's like the Alcatraz guys. That At least they made dummies with paper mache heads. Ted was just books. Was not crafty. <laughs> no, he was not. From Chicago, he traveled to Michigan, where he watched the Rose Bowl in a bar and got super drunk, hung oh, out. At least he got to watch a game. Yeah, I know. Poor guy. Five days later, he stole another car and drove it into Atlanta, where he hopped a bus to Tallahassee, Florida. On January 8th, he rented a room under the alias Chris Hagen at the Holiday Inn near the Florida State University campus. Ted said he wanted to start a new life in Florida as Chris Hagen and be an upstanding guy. But we know that's not possible. And very quickly, he began, like, stealing credit cards and shoplifting. Mm -hmm. Chi Omega was a Florida State University sorority that prided itself on being different. Every sorority claims to be a family, but the Chi Omega sisters really were. They also emphasized individuality over sameness. They wanted their girls to all have goals and their own mindset and really try and do something with the world. They all had different paths they were traveling, but they all supported each other. They were ambitious and independent and determined to make a difference in the world. January 15th, 1978, so we've gone a few years now with the arrests and the escapes and the other arrests and stuff. This was a night just like any other. The sisters of Chi Omega had all gone to bed for the night, and all the doors were locked, except for the back door, because the lock was broken. But their campus was safe, and the girls slept soundly. 
Between 3 and 3.15 a.m., a man entered through the broken door with a wooden club while the girls slept. I think we all know who that is. Diane McCain, one of the sisters, remembers waking up in the middle of the night with a start, though she could not pinpoint why she woke up. She just did. Hmm. You know how sometimes you're like, what is it? Why am I awake? Mm -hmm. She just knew at that moment that something was terribly wrong. Diane heard some commotion and padded down the hallway to her friend Lisa's room, who she found lying in a pool of her own blood on her in her bed. Soon, the sisters were all awake and calling the damn cops. The bloodbath they uncovered was beyond the wildest nightmares any of them had ever imagined or experienced. This unknown man had bludgeoned 21-year-old Margaret Bowman with a piece of oak firewood as she slept. Then he strangled her with a nylon stocking. He then entered the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beat her unconscious, strangled her, tore one of her nipples, because they all go for the nipples. Why? I don't know. Then bit deeply into her left buttock and sexually assaulted her with a hairspray bottle. In an adjoining bedroom, he attacked Kathy Kleiner, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder. And then Karen Chandler, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. Karen and Kathy survived the attack. And when police arrived on the scene, they found Kate Kathy dazed in the upstairs hallway, her face beaten in, and her jaw hanging from just one of its hinges. Wow. The cops describing this is like the eeriest thing. She was like, her face was just destroyed. And like like I said, her jaw was like hanging off, like loosely just hanging. She's saturated in blood and like staggering down the hallway. And that's what the cops like encountered as soon as they walked in. Wow. How many is this now? Uh, It's four women, two dead, two assaulted. After this storm of violence, Ted had slipped out of the Chi Omega house and, not finished, walked five blocks away and broke into the house of dance student Cheryl Thomas, entering her home through a window. He attacked Cheryl, dislocating her shoulder and fracturing her jaw and skull in five places. She was left with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage that ended her dance career. On Cheryl's bed, police found a semen stain and a pantyhose mask containing two hairs, quote, similar to Ted's in class and characteristic. The Colorado Police Department, hearing about the Chi Omega events the next morning, calls over to the Florida police and suggests that the man they are looking for is probably Ted Bundy. Yeah. But the Florida police discredit this, saying that this is a spree murder and it's not Ted's style. Uh, the man is just on his, like, last hurrah. He knows he's— I know. He knows he's done. <laughs> As saying that also, saying that traveling across the country to hunt down girls on a college campus so he can violently rape and murder them isn't Ted's style is insane. It's exactly his style. Ex- yes. That's a formula. It's precisely what he does every time. Just because there's more than one or two in a night doesn't mean it's not him. <sighs> and this careless action ends up costing 12-year-old Kimberly Leach her life. But first, a misstep. On February 8th, Ted drove 150 miles east to Jacksonville, Florida, in a stolen Florida State University van. While there, he approached 14-year-old Leslie Mm. Parmenter, the daughter of Jacksonville Police Department's chief of detectives. He gets a lot of police's kids, too. Like, what are you doing? He approached the daughter of Jacksonville Police Department's chief of detectives in a parking lot, identifying himself as Richard Burton, fire department. Richard Burton is an actor. He's not even trying. (laughs) But then he retreated when Leslie's older brother showed up and challenged him. Yeah, older brothers. <laughs> I knew you were going to like that. 
<laughs> your older brother brother would have saved you. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I've been like, this looks like a nice guy. <laughs> Want to go get a beer? Oh, no. <laughs> no. Maybe. Maybe. You know, we don't know. But that still would have stopped him. He was Richard Burton firefighter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On February 9th, 1978, Kimberly Diane Leach went to school as usual. That morning, her homeroom teacher had forgotten her purse and asked Kimberly to go out to her car and retrieve it for her. Kimberly never came back. This seems like an odd request for a teacher to me, but I assume it was fine in the late 70s to be like, go out to the parking lot and get my purse, child. Yeah. Me, I mean, maybe. That feels weird to me, but I, again. But it, this, yeah. I can don't you know. imagine how know. guilty this teacher feels now? Yeah. She asked her to run an errand where and she went out to the parking lot and then she got murdered. I mean, I bet you it was, I mean, is this Leslie still or who is this? No, this is Kimberly Diane Leach. Leslie's brother saved the day. That's right. And just to make it clear, my brother would have saved yes, the day. Yes, Adam would save the day. <laughs> Maybe she was like the teacher's pet. I don't know. It was just like, oh, go go out and get my Here's purse. my car keys. Go get my, my purse. smokes are in there. Probably. It was, <laughs> it was in the probably, 70s. She was probably getting her smoke. Probably. <laughs> Man. Ted had taken Kimberly in broad daylight from right in front of her school. Seven weeks later, after an intensive search, Kimberly's partially mummified remains were found in a pig farrowing shed near Suwannee River State Park. Medical examiners say she appeared to have been raped, then killed by neck lacerations with a knife. Just like, get this guy. I know. On February 12th, now totally broken with overdue rent and a growing suspicion that the police were going to catch him, Ted stole another car and fled Tallahassee, driving westward toward the Florida Panhandle. Three days later, at around 1 a.m., he was stopped by Pensacola police officer David Lee near the Alabama state line. Officer Lee was on patrol when he caught sight of a Volkswagen bug slowly cruising through the neighborhoods with his lights off. Officer Lee assumed that this person was looking for houses to rob. Yet again, this should sound very familiar. The officer ran the plates on the bug and discovered that it was stolen. And of course, it was another fucking bug. I know. He loves those. I know. You would think he would vary the type of car he killed people in, but nope. Like a signature scent, you would only ever find Ted in a Volkswagen bug if he could help it. I only trust a German car. I guess. <laughs> the officer pulled Ted over and got him out of the car, because this is a stolen car, so he can arrest him, put him face down on the pavement. Now... Again, at the very least, he's driving a stolen vehicle, so this arrest is warranted. But then, Ted's eyes shift, and he decides he's going to fight this cop. They fist fight, and Ted tries to take his gun, which results in the officer taking a shot that thankfully doesn't land. Eventually, the officer gets Ted into his vehicle, and he's Ted's super roughed up at this point, with like a big giant bruise on his face. His face is super swollen in the pictures, which would prevent people from identifying him, probably, mm-hmm. too. So he looks undeniably different. In the stolen VW bug were three sets of IDs belonging to female FSU students, 21 stolen credit cards, and a stolen television set. Because if there are two things Ted Bundy loves, it's killing women and stealing. Love it. Yeah. Also found were a pair of dark-rimmed non-prescription glasses and a pair of plaid pants, which would later be identified as the disguise worn by Richard Burton Firefighter in Jacksonville. See? (laughs) That was a misstep. Officer Lee drove his suspect to jail, totally unaware that he had just arrested one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives. As they closed in on their destination, he heard Ted say from the back of the car, quote, I wish you had killed me. Don't worry, Ted, that doesn't happen soon enough. And this officer, when interviewed later in life, says, I wish I had just taken that shot. I know. 
I can't blame him for saying that. I really can't. Oh, I mean, justice does not. happen, but I, I just, I can't blame him. Now, all of this sounds like an open and shut moment for Ted, but of course it's not. He gives Officer Lee a driver's license identifying himself as Kenneth Meisner. There's a video of Ted appearing in court in front of a Florida judge under this name. The judge, le- judge is like, Mr. Meisner. It's so <gasps> strange, but it's Ted. It's, it's unsettling. Now, the judge knows this is an alias. And they ask over and over for him to tell them who he really was, but Ted refuses. Fortunately, because he did steal a car and all those stolen credit cards were there and stuff, they have enough to detain him. And upon a very correct suspicion, the judge holds Ted without bond because they didn't know who he was and why he wouldn't tell them. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the court agrees to give Ted two hours to get his affairs in order, and then they will reconvene, and he has to tell them who he is. You who just do you th- have to. Yeah. So who do you think he called? Lawyers? Family? No. He called Liz. He called Collect, and Molly answered, accepting the call and giving Liz the phone. He told Liz that um, he had been detained in Florida, and that things were going to get really bad. He told her that he was sick, and there were, quote, things he just couldn't be around, meaning young, beautiful women. He said there was a force within him that compelled him to do these terrible things and that he was helpless against it. Liz said she thought he knew he was too murderous for society. He then has the audacity to ask Liz, quote, didn't you always know? To which she responded very honestly, yes and no. This is like such a painful moment for right. me because like she, why are you putting that on her? Well, couldn't you have done something? You could have done something. Well, that's his MO. Oh, absolutely. But it's just so painful. It, that's like gaslighting. Absolutely gaslighting. A hundred percent that's what that is. Well, you, this is your fault yeah. that I am doing this. You could have stopped it. I mean, she tried to. She tried really five hard. Five times. Yeah. And I mean, from then on out, she does work with the police and she talks all about this interview and stuff, but like, it's just so hard for her. And I really, I truly feel horrible for mm-hmm. her. Ted then reels out his story about his sickness and he compares it to alcoholism. He says he's addicted to like these violent crimes. Maybe he was, but come on, like, I don't fucking care. Liz, after all of this, is so traumatized that she goes on to ask him if it was her fault. She asked if he killed those women because of something she did, because maybe he was angry at her and took it out on them. Once again, I'm going to ask our listeners not to judge this woman. This is a trauma response. She's been through too much. And it can be easier to take the blame for something that was wildly not your fault than to admit you were powerless. I apologize all the time for things I didn't do wrong. And I bet a lot of our listeners have too. I bet you have. Absolutely. It's the impulse to say, I'm sorry, when someone tells you like they had a bad day. Why are you sorry? You didn't do anything. Self-blame is just a reflex that a great many of us have. After all of this, Liz waits for Ted to confess. But that didn't happen. Instead, he went on to crusade and defend himself to try and get off on all charges, which was, of course, insane and a huge media circus. Now, there would have always been newspaper and magazine articles on a murderer like Ted. It was big news. One interviewer who spoke to him, like, right at this point in Florida mentioned that, just like in my opening, they entered a room, nervous to talk to this killer, and left thinking that Ted was innocent just because of the way he acted. This interviewer was a man, and he walked in and saw him sitting at a table, going through books, listening to soft classical music from the local college station. (laughs) Stay away from colleges, please. Then Ted recounted his own childhood and made the interviewer really relate to him, and he thought of his own. He just could not digest the fact that someone who was so much like him and so easy to chat with 
could be guilty of so many heinous crimes. He said, quote, if I believed he was capable of it, then I was capable of it too. Mm. And herein lies the thesis of this case. The world was controlled by Ted's at that time. And it still is to a point. And none of them wanted to admit that there was a monster among them. That any one of them was capable of doing horrible and unspeakable things. And they put this fear above the lives of 28 women. News articles are trickling in at this point until, like a little slow feed, being reported on, but not nuts. Until one event escalated Ted's trial into the media event that we all kind of recognize. There would be no Zac Efron in the blue bow tie without this one indictment that a Florida officer decided to make for the Kyle Omega murders in front of a huge amount of invited press. So what he did, he invited all the press to the courtroom, and they knew they were bringing Ted over from prison. So he stood in front of the elevator with all the press around him, cameras, video, the whole nine. And as soon as Ted walked out of the elevator, he was like, Ted Bundy, you are indicted, like this big show. And of course, Ted, the, being the alpha male that he was, reacted and was just as cocky and just as crazy and like walks over to the guy indicting him and puts his arm around him. He's like, hey, what do you got here? <laughs> well, 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 I'm not guilty of this. And then the media saw a star. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they realized that they had material with Ted mm-hmm. Bundy and they intended to use it. Ted's trial was broadcast live on television, like the OJ trial, and it featured a grinning Ted dressed fashionably, charming the jury and questioning people he had done great bodily harm to. Some of the press even believed that he was innocent because they couldn't shake the image of him being someone they wanted to spend time with. The press allowed Ted to make himself a hero, and in doing so, they completely discounted all of his victims. The journalism is so irresponsible. But this, like, really reminds me of the journalism in Amanda Knox's trial. Right. Very similar. They're like, well, we have, we have material. We have something to run with. This is it. This is my job. I'm, I'm going to make my career with this shit. Mm. Back in the courtroom, no matter how charming Ted made himself out to be, this case was open and shut for the prosecution. Ted put on a big show, but in the end did a terrible job defending himself. He turned down four court-appointed lawyers, and one of them said, quote, Ted was facing murder charges with a possible death sentence, and all that mattered to him, apparently, was that he be in charge. Ted turned down his only plea deal, a deal that would have spared his life at the last moment because, in the end, he realized that if he had taken it, he'd have to stand up in that court in front of all the news cameras and say he was guilty, and he couldn't do that. A trial, crucial testimony came in from Chi Omega sorority sisters, Connie Hastings, who placed Ted in the vicinity of the Chi Omega house the night of the killings, and Nita Neary, who saw him leaving the sorority house clutching the oak murder weapon. Incriminating physical evidence included impressions of the bite wounds Ted had inflicted on Lisa Levy's left buttock, which forensic odontologists Richard Suviron and Lowell Levine matched to castings of Ted's teeth which is innovative science for that time. Right. That was another, like, piece of forensics that they had, like, to do. But even then, it was a very simple kind yeah. of process, for much different than how they can do it today. But if you had dental records anywhere, yeah. they, they could find you. Right. So fun fact, getting those dental impressions was a crazy covert operation. The prosecution obtained a warrant for them in secret, and an officer took Ted from his jail cell in the middle of the night to the building where the impressions would be done. And he didn't tell Ted what was happening until he was in the room. And when Ted entered, there were armed guards standing at the ready. 
The judge has said that the impressions should be obtained by any means necessary and that the guards were there to hold him down should he resist. Ted replied, quote, do what you have to, Ken. You know I'm not a violent person. Oh. (laughs) I know. We're just sick. Obviously, a jury found Ted very, very guilty, convicting him on July 24th, 1979 of Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy's murders and three accounts of attempted first-degree murder for the assaults on Kathy Kleiner, Karen Chandler, and Cheryl Thomas, and two counts of burglary. Trial Judge Edward Cowart imposed death sentences for the murder convictions, but this wasn't Ted's only trial. And through it all, there was one constant in the courtroom, a curious woman smiling and making eye contact with Ted working on his case from the sidelines, and talking to the press whenever she could, and shouting his innocence from any hilltop she could find. And that woman was Carol Ann Boone. Carol was completely under his spell. She also had quite the troubled past of her own. And they had been, like, on and off again dating for a very long time, which, like, they denied for a while, but there's plenty of evidence. When she was younger, Carol Ann, that is, she was put in charge of her 15-year-old brother one evening. During this time... While she wasn't paying attention, her brother slipped and fell and drowned in a swimming pool. Carol wanted to save someone. She couldn't save her brother, so she would try to save Ted. She worked nonstop with the National Project to abolish the death penalty and therefore surrounded herself with people who were blind to the crimes Ted committed because they were so focused on ending this one particular result. They could not see the forest for the trees and encouraged Carol's interactions with Ted. And these are the people she just kept herself surrounded by hate that. I do too. But you're going to put yourself in a position where what you want seems to be true. Right. People believe what they want to believe. Mm-hmm. Next, Ted went on trial for the kidnapping and murder of Kimberly Leach. And during this time, he called just one witness, Carol Ann Boone, to the stand to defend his character. But Ted had more than just that in mind. He decided that he would take advantage of a little-known Florida law at the time that stated that any marriage that was declared in a court of law in front of a judge was legally binding. So he famously asked Carol to marry him on the stand, and you can see video of this, and she enthusiastically agreed, and Ted declared them to be married, and so they were. Yep. (sighs) Leslie, I truly need a break in all this madness before we sew it up. Can you tell us about any other fun, little-known state laws? I know there are a lot. Yeah. um, I just know a couple off the top of my head. Oh, just bring them to the table. Sure. So (laughs) in Alaska, if you kill a moose or any big game animal, no matter the circumstances, you have to at least try to salvage, salvage the meat so people can eat it. So if you're, if okay, you ever, yeah, so Holly, if you ever visit Alaska, uh-huh. before you visit, just learn how to salvage meat. <laughs> because if you accidentally hit it and don't try, you're going to jail. <laughs> well, according to our episode on Ed Gein, you need to make sure you take out all the innards in a pile yeah. so you can cool it down. You just have to look like you're trying. You don't have to do a great job. <laughs> just like poke at it a little bit and be like, oh, I tried. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay. In Arkansas, oh. according to section 1855, or sorry, 18-55. Got it. <laughs> of Little Rock's Code of Ordinance, current as of March to 2017, mm-hmm. states, no person shall sound the horn on a vehicle at any place where cold drinks or sandwiches are served after 9 p.m. <laughs> 
do not ruin my sandwiches and cold drinks I after know. 9 p.m. That one just seems – there's a lot of those yeah. um, in other states, and it seems like such a, like, 1950s law. Yeah. Just like, don't disturb us at the diners after 9 cold p.m. Cold drinks and sandwiches. What if you only offered coffee and, like, pastries? Then it's fine. Honk it's your horn fine. away. Yeah. Got mm-hmm. it. In Vermont, okay. it is illegal for groups like neighborhood associations to ban clotheslines, which means they must have been able to ban clotheslines, and then that got people riled up. <laughs> they just took it back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people were really angry about it. Okay. <laughs> In Wisconsin, it is against the law to propel any rocks, stone bricks, or other missiles at railroad trains. But I think you could just drop it on top. <laughs> You can't, like, propel. You just can't throw it. Okay. Yeah. In Michigan, blasphemy is still against the law and will get you a misdemeanor. <laughs> you just... Guys, keep keep Jesus in your heart. Yeah. In Massachusetts, it is illegal to swear at players and officials during sporting events. <laughs> if you are over 16, they could take you into custody. Oh, this no. This seems, like, impossible to control, and it's... And it's Massachusetts. Like, what do they do in Boston? Everyone would be in jail. And the whole city of Boston would be in jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't swear. Although they can do it to each other, just not players. And They like, do it to players. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're not just swearing at each other. <laughs> so, like, any sensitive player in the field could be like, that made me sad. Arrest him. And then they could. <laughs> they could. Oh, they could man. In New Hampshire... It is illegal to check into a hotel with a false name. Uh-oh. Yeah. Good thing Ted wasn't in New Hampshire. I know. I was thinking <laughs> that. <laughs> in Colorado, specifically Severance, Colorado, up until 2019, it was illegal to throw snowballs. <laughs> but a nine-year-old boy pushed for the change. <laughs> How cute is that? Be the change, nine-year-old. <laughs> yeah. I love that so kid. I just want to throw a snowball and not fear for... The death penalty, I guess. I'm going to change I laws. Assume. The death penalty. Yeah, that was the consequence. I assume. Snowballs <laughs> equals F. Like trees equal murder. Yes. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. <laughs> in Texas, in order to hold a public office, you have to believe in a supreme being. You can't be excluded for your beliefs, but those beliefs have to involve a supreme being. So I could believe in the flying spaghetti monster and run. Yeah. You just can't not believe in anything. If you believe in nothing, forget it. You or can't. like multiple Supremes. Oh, I think so there can't also has to like be like one. A monotheistic belief. I or mean, I mean I a polytheistic so. yeah. belief. That's funny. I mean, normally with those, they're still like a major a lot of times. I guess. I don't know. Not a lot of people wandering around being like, I believe in the Greek gods. <laughs> oh, I wish that was sometimes. So like, too. can we bring these back? I like these guys. They're way more fun. Yeah. In North Carolina, bingo games cannot last more than five hours, which means that they had to, and it had to have been a problem. That is a problem. I would have to leave. It's probably like the workers or like Mm -hmm. the people that put on the event being like, this game is going on too long. World weary and haggard. I have five hours for this. (laughs) I've allocated five hours to this bingo game and not a minute more. In New York, adultery is still a crime and can send you to jail for up to 90 days with a $500 fine. Ew, come on, New York. That's I mean, like, I'm not advocating anybody cheap, but, like, that can't be, a like, a crime. Yeah, um, this probably just when they have a cheat check, because clearly it happens all the time. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> but if you are in New York and your boyfriend cheats on you or girlfriend, you could call the cops. <laughs> yeah, you could call the damn cops. 
In Rhode Island, it is against the law to bite someone else's limbs off. You can bite your own off. In every place, it should be illegal to bite someone else's limb off. Yeah. I don't know why it's so specifically biting. I want to find out. Who bit off somebody's leg in Rhode Island? Yeah. Something gross happened there. In Florida, this is great because this happens to us here in Jersey. So in Florida, it is against the law to buy alcohol during a hurricane. This is to limit hurricane parties, which, like, we throw all the time Everybody <laughs> buys alcohol. I mean, you guys, like, you know what it's like when the pandemic happened and everything shut down? That is what it's like in a hurricane state. The first thing we did was push for all, like, breweries and wineries and liquor stores to open. I know. <laughs> it was the only thing we wanted. We were like, do they deliver? Yeah. And they were like, yes. Yeah, of course we do. <laughs> now yeah. we do. Uh-huh. That's great. I love getting my beer on <laughs> front step. It is nice. (laughs) Great. In Utah, it is against the law to hold a happy hour or any event uh, that is a discounted liquor event that promotes overindulgence. Mm. Oh, this one's from my hometown. Or home state. Always always comes back to Connecticut. (laughs) In Connecticut, specifically Southington, Connecticut, Mm. it is against the law to purchase and use silly string, which probably explains my fear of silly string. Like, I just, I'm like, ugh, I don't like it. Yeah. It's illegal. Someone was like, I'm so inconvenienced by silly string that it's against the law. It's probably my mother. Oh, no. <laughs> I bet it's because it ends up in like a body of water or something or it does something bad. It might. It's just annoying. It it's, is annoying. And it's it's uh, destructive to property. There you go. You know. It could maybe like ruin paint jobs and stuff. It, like, I don't know gets, what the chemicals in it are. It gets stuck on your driveway. It can get stuck on people's cars if like kids are Maybe animals around. eat it and then die. They probably do. So maybe Connecticut's yeah. onto something. In Illinois, it is illegal to fall asleep in a cheese shop. <laughs> <laughs> who who falls asleep in a cheese shop? I mean, have you ever eaten a lot of cheese? Not in the shop. I'm not just sitting there like cheesemonger. Bring me another slab. <laughs> <laughs> well, these people were. <laughs> I guess. I'm not no longer. In Minnesota, this is a funny one, it is illegal to chase or catch a pig that has been greased, oiled, or otherwise. Probably for the purpose of a contest yeah. is what I'm thinking. Nobody's just like, that's my pig. Yeah. It's greasy. I like it. I just, it just made me think of um, South Park. Yeah. I don't know if you watched that episode where Cartman greases himself up. It'd oh, been completely no. illegal for them to try to oh, catch him. Oh, no. Um, it is also illegal to throw a to throw a chicken or turkey in the air with the intent to catch it. But I guess it's not illegal to throw it in the just air without the intent. <laughs> just like, so I'm just flinging it. it into the air and running away is fine. Yeah. But you can't catch it. Yes. What an odd thing. Right? <laughs> Two more. Yeah. In Ohio, it is illegal to arrest people for less serious crimes and misdemeanors on Sundays and the 4th of July, except if you're on a river. Maritime rules. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't control the sea. But I how don't nice care. is that? It's like a Sunday and yeah. they're just like, he's speeding. It's fine. <laughs> Not in a boat. Not then in a done. boat. You're done. Yeah. Maritime law. You're done. In New Jersey, it is illegal to frown at a cop. Is it? It is. Oh, no. <laughs> in Haddon Township. Okay. This is also in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It's illegal to annoy someone of the opposite sex. <laughs> I'm going to go there. <laughs> it's also illegal to slurp your soup in public. Oh, good. That's gross. You'll have to serve double time if you commit murder with a bulletproof vest on, too. Oh, 
Yeah. Give them a chance to kill you back. Yeah. Right. <laughs> New Jersey's not messing around. Well, that makes and that one makes sense to me because that seems more like intent. Like they knew what they were going to do. Yeah. Bulletproof vest on. But yeah, don't slurp your soup in public. Do and, not. Um, don't annoy me. Yeah. Oh. Boys. I think that one's a little sexist. Like I think it should be anybody. I agree. Don't be gendering the annoyance. You annoy someone of the opposite sex. But like your your own d- uh, gender, yeah. whoever you identify with, you can annoy the shit out of them. That's right. All right. And always smile at that cop. No yeah, you know what? They could take you in. They could. They could. I'm going to remember that one. Yeah. And those were just some facts I had in my head. Yeah. You're so, you just have so much trivia yeah. knocking around up there. I do. <laughs> I should do trivia nights. <laughs> Would be dead trivia. It would be oh, and bananas. I call back to all of these you trivia could. games. Maybe oh, that's guys. a patron thing. All right. Maybe we're having ideas. That's right. You're, you guys are all going to have to listen to all the episodes again to study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're just we're just hustling nonstop over here. We would be dead headquarters, which is not just a funny thing. I'm saying we really are. Yeah. <laughs> and we're doing the hustle. We are. <laughs> Well, okay, so that was, thank you, that was a lovely break. Yeah, you're welcome. So after this trial where he got married, Ted was also also sentenced to death for Kimberly Leach's murder. Good on them. And in the most truly disgusting moment of this whole case, and it's all disgusting, when the judge finishes his sentencing, he tells Ted that he bears no animosity for him. And what happened to him was a real shame because he would have made a bright lawyer someday. He would have loved to have him in his courtroom. And then he tells him numerous times to take care of himself. What? This is the judge that sentenced him to death for murdering a little girl. And he says those words to him. It's so weird. It's stomach turning. You can see video of this too. I mean, everything was on video then because Ted was a media sensation. And um, I don't recommend it because you're, you're going to throw your TV right. or computer. I mean, it just seems so perfect though. Like it's still Ted manipulating. Yep. Like that this judge, built- that judge was very adamant about getting those dental records. It was very harsh at first, and then mm-hmm. was just by the this end. This is a of different it, judge. Oh, that's a different judge. This judge was just Kimberly Leach's trial. Oh, right. Okay. But yeah. still, he knew he didn't he not know the other right, stuff, right. and he knew that he kidnapped, raped, and murdered a twelve-year-old girl. Yeah, I. I mean, that just speaks to the power of Ted sitting in a room with you for yeah five minutes. I think that's why he's the scariest. Mm-hmm. People knew that. They just, it wouldn't absorb to them because he, they were so taken in by him being what he was. Yeah. Over the years, Ted tried to appeal a great many times, of course. Everybody tries to appeal, but it never worked. He and Carol Ann managed to have a child while he was on death row in a circumstance where legally he wasn't allowed to even touch her. There is a charming rumor on the internet that she got pregnant because Ted had gotten a hold of condoms filled one up, tied it off, put it in his mouth, kissed her through the bars of the jail cell, passed it over to her into her mouth, and then she took it home and used the contents. Or they just let them consummate. (laughs) What actually most likely happened is that Ted just paid off a jailer and he let him, they let them walk away. But the fact that that exists on like a million sites on the internet is insane. That is insane. Which means that it, I wonder if that's happened and worked. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Why else would they come up with that? Right. Some crazy ass people. I don't know. But uh, anyway, she had a baby, a little girl named Rosa, who now lives under a completely different name, under the radar, witness protection. And I can't blame her. Oh my God. She probably just is like 
crawling under her skin all day. I'm sure she is. Carolyn Boone um, died since, so she's just li- she just has no connection anymore, the mm. daughter. Ted tried until the last possible moment for a stay of execution, but no judge would grant it. Um, and the one of his lawyers that he had, like, try to appeal his case was, uh, like, a young woman, and it was her first case, which is nuts that they gave that to yes. her as her first case. But she was, like, an early, like, mid-20s young girl, which is perfect for him. That's exactly who he knows how to manipulate. And she thought she was saving his life. She really did. She's like, I'm going to get this guy off of death row. His life is in my hands. And after his trial, she's like, you know, it doesn't all go right. But uh, I'll get to it in a second. But he does confess, and I've said that. And when she found out that he confessed to all of those murders, she stopped practicing law. She she could never do it again. She couldn't walk into a courtroom. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's mm-hmm. so horrible. Isn't that crazy? I feel, I wonder if they assigned her initially because they were thinking like, well, she won't be able to get the appeal. I don't know. I th- I think it was just whoever would take, I don't think a lot of people wanted to take his case. And he oh, defended maybe. himself for a long time. Well, and I guess some people were, some people, I guess, believed that he was innocent of yes, all of the killings. They did. They did. There was a, there was a yeah. campaign that he was innocent. It existed until the very last. Mm-hmm. It's so hard for us to, like, remember that because obviously we know everything that he did yeah. going into this. But people, people were blind. I mean, they still hadn't found all the bodies. They didn't know yeah. that he was even connected to those bodies. Like, Yep. So... Just days away from Ted's execution date, he would go on to confess to 28 murders. Those in the know call this act, quote, Bones for Time. And I just want you all to know right now that that's my new band name, so don't try and take it. Okay, okay. (laughs) Bones for Time, starring Dumpster Cuffs. Ooh, or that could be like a watch company, and you could like build the thing. Yes. Love that. Mm, copyright. Yeah. That's our idea. Copyright. That's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so Ted would continue confessing until like the moment he walked into the execution room, to like the very last moment when he was allowed to talk. He even tried to pull a Hail, Hail Mary and blame pornography for his murderous impulses, but nothing worked. Because of this, I suppose we will never really know how many women Ted Bundy murdered. Had he had more time, he might have confessed to more. We don't know. These are women we know disappeared, we have more evidence of, but you said yourself, so many people hitchhiked. How many people did he find that that weren't reported missing or who were assumed to be runaways and whose case wasn't explored? We, we can't know. Carol Ann Boone was so massively betrayed by these admissions because she worked for his innocence and really convinced herself that he was innocent for so long that she did not grant her daughter permission for a last visit with him. Mm. She cut him off entirely and just waited for him to die. On the eve of his execution, Ted talked about committing suicide. Quote, he did not want to give the state the satisfaction of watching him die. I wouldn't have cared. He just wanted control die. to the last minute. No, no, no. Mm. I don't want him to have control I know. Of People that. are like that. I'm just like, whatever. Just die. <laughs> One of the last things Ted ever did before he sat down in the electric chair was write a letter to Liz. A letter that, thankfully, Molly got to first. She read it herself and then threw it into the fireplace. Oh, Go Molly. Go. She was older at this point. Yes. How old was she? I don't know. Probably. Closer to an adult because this is 1989. Mm-hmm. So. That's true, yeah. So she was in her 20s, I guess. She read it and she said it was him talking about finding God and talking about how he loved her. And she, Liz had found her spirituality because she was a recovering addict, a recovering mm-hmm. um, alcoholic, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. 
She had a lot of struggles with that. But no, uh, I'd be surprised if she didn't. Mm-hmm. And Molly knew that if if she read this, she would have forgiven him. And then he would, she would have to watch him die in a state where she loved him. And she'd have to grieve that. I'm so glad Molly was old enough to understand that. I know. I just, amazing. She's amazing. Ted died in the Rayford electric chair at 6, 7.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 24th, 1989. His last words were, quote, Give my love to my family and friends. Thousands of people waited outside the Florida prison, cheering and shouting and waiting for the word that Ted was gone. It's a circus. Right. People, like, made up songs and stuff. It was so crazy. After Ted was declared dead, as per his last wishes, a lawyer called Liz and told her that Ted wanted her to know that he had always loved her and that he was sad she never responded to his very last letter. Liz was baffled because she never received such a letter. Molly then admitted to burning it to save her mother watching him die from a place where she was brought back into loving him. Molly said that she was glad that Ted went to his death, never knowing if Liz still loved him. Molly Kendall is a stone-cold, badass, bright and beautiful woman, and I admire her very much. Mm -hmm. She went through some shit on her own, but oh my God. that Can you imagine having that kind of resolve in that moment? That's This is like the only father figure she ever knew, too. Right. Wow. So yes, I fast-tracked through some of the court stuff in this case and the information, information about Ted's time in prison because that's Ted. That's where Ted is the star, and that's not what I want to talk about. I'm not here to give him any more of those chances. I chose to spend my allotted time on mostly the women and what happened to them, and I would do it again. Mm-hmm. Ted's death was a reason for celebration all over Florida, but not for all of his victims' family and not for Cheryl Martin. For them, this additional loss of life felt empty. Susan Rankert's mother, Vivian, called Ted's mother the day after his execution. She described the conversation between the two of them simply as one between two mothers who had lost their child. She forgave Ted's mother and told her that she didn't hold her responsible for any of his crimes. And this is where Ted's story should end. Two women grieving for children they lost and Ted Bundy nowhere in sight. And that's it. Wow. That was great. Thanks. Yeah, there's a lot of, if you want to see his court footage mm-hmm. or any of that stuff, it's very easy to get your hands on. You guys very can watch. Very easy, and the um, I did enjoy, to the extent that you can enjoy it, the the Netflix show with uh, Zac Efron. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I feel like because he puts on such a show yeah. for the courtroom, it is definitely more entertaining to watch it. It is, <laughs> and, and, and people were so mad that he seems so innocuous. He doesn't seem evil enough for a lot of people, but he didn't. He wasn't. And that's the point. And the name of that documentary, uh, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, yes. was something that that first judge said about him. So yeah. he had some judges that really nailed him to the wall. It was just that last one that was mm-hmm. a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Oh, gosh. This story just broke my heart. It really, it really did, yeah. You think of it as this like crazy rock star serial killer trial, and it was, mm-hmm. but there's so much that I think women, if they sit down and think about it, can identify with. Mm-hmm. You can see men you know in this guy. I can see men I've dated in this mm-hmm. guy. Even for males, this is something, I mean, how many times have you sat down in front of a guy that has been an asshole to women? You're right. And after speaking with him, you're like, well, he was kind of nice. Maybe, oh, maybe yeah. you know, sometimes girls can be a little extra. You have a good, very good point there. And okay, even girls for that matter, you yeah. know. Just, 
Everyone. Guys addict to your best friend. And a few minutes later, you're like, well, but he's like, he's cool. Yeah. He's nice. It just didn't work out between them. I think that listening to this story, if you listen to it the right way, should change the way you think about things. Mm -hmm. I mean, it did for me. Yeah. I, 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 I see that I just... I don't know, just question people. Like, if, yeah. if this many people are against you, just be like, and don't, oh, what? I don't know. It's, and and, and <laughs> it's Ugh. a further matter of just bad behavior going on for so long because we have a forgiving nature and right. because we don't want to see bad in people that our mind doesn't tell us are bad. And sometimes, too, I think it's a little bit of you just don't want drama. Yeah. It's just a little bit of like, I just don't feel like causing a problem right now, so I'm just going to accept that I'm just going to, like, this is a nice nice enough guy. Yeah. And I identify, like, I definitely had boyfriends in my past mm-hmm. who broke my heart and who I knew were doing things behind my back, but I just let them go because right. I, I just didn't want them to be true. I didn't want that to be happening. So I see so much where Liz is coming from because she doesn't doesn't want that. She doesn't yeah. want her boyfriend to be murdering people. And of course she doesn't. And I know that our experiences may be on a very small scale and they may be forgivable offenses and they may be something different, but it's just a little kernel of identifiable feelings. Yes. Where you can say like, this is so very real. Mm-hmm. And, and you should be scared. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Heavy, right? So heavy. Oh, I think we should toast. Okay. <laughs> I know. I think we should take a little breather and, and then have a nice toast. So uh, I'm going to toast to Liz and Molly Kendall. Yes. Um, and if you haven't watched Falling for a Killer, the documentary on Amazon Prime, and you want a lot of my sources, watch it. It's, it's so informative. It's going to, like, hurt your soul and change the way you view things like this forever. Mm-hmm. So I want to toast to them and to Cheryl Martin, who was the first one to say, like, this is all one killer and we should yeah, find him. I know. She was great. She really was. And, uh, God, there are so many people. Ted had so many victims. I can't. Mm-hmm. All, I mean, every victim. Every and single And every one. survivor. Is there anybody else in the case you? I mean, we're, we're not going to be able to involve everyone. There's so many. Absolutely. Oh, I know. so but, many. So cheers to them <laughs> and to, to like, the driving force of women in this case that really, Ooh. yeah, the driver of that one woman yes! that jumped in the car. Yes, don't <laughs> fuck with Carol and fucking cheers to the person that was like, yeah. hop in and just kept going. Into, Amazing. Into every older brother that is here to save us. <laughs> yes. So cheers. <laughs> and uh, oh, we have patrons. We do. <laughs> okay. Guys, hold tight. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting my clinks ready. All right. Cheers or toast to Haley Holmes. We love you. Yes. Oh, I just spilled coffee all over myself. To Amy Lee. Amy Lay, maybe. Amy Lay. I'm sorry. All of of that, Amy. We love you. (laughs) Toast to Melissa Schwartz. Woo. She's a best fiend forever. Woohoo. Yeah. Also an incredible chess player. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Rachel Mask, sorry, toast yes. to Rachel Maska, best fiend forever, and social media connoisseur. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Cheers to all of our new patrons. We're going to have some content coming at you really soon. 
Um, cheers to everybody who came to our live one-year anniversary event this past Friday. That was real fun. That was fun. I think we'll do, well, well, obviously we do those every month. But uh, for our patrons, we're, I think, is, are we going to do that every time? The green room thing? Yeah. I think so. I think it would be fun. So into all of our patrons, and especially you new people, you'll get access to our green room uh hour before like happy hour before the live event yeah if john's there to do makeup or doing makeup if it's just me and leslie we'll have a cocktail and hang out it's just a chat we're not telling stories at that point in time we're just there to talk with just you so as a patron it's going to be a zoom meeting too Mm -hmm. we can all see each other's faces or not if you don't want to or you can just listen to us yeah you can just listen to us babble and get ready (laughs) talk about our shopping list Uh uh-huh yeah that's i mean it's all it's all good whatever you want we'll be making cocktails (laughs) and sitting by my taxidermy and hanging out yeah (laughs) that's about it but yeah, it was really fun this past time. And um, we had some really fun and lively conversation. We have some great stuff lined up for you guys, too. We have guests the next few weeks. Yeah. We have um, an expert coming on to talk about Jack the Ripper soon. Great. So, uh, yeah, look forward to all these things. And um, I, think that's, I think that's all my Bundy. Great. And if we were approached by a man with arresting eyes and a charming smile, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. (laughs) Old dumpster handcuffs. (laughs) 